everyone. Thanks for checking out this podcast. I hope today's conversation inspires you and builds your faith for the moment you are in right now. Know that God's love for you truly changes everything. Enjoy the message. Well, the other day I was on Facebook and uh, I was flipping through and came across uh, an old buddy of mine from high school posting about vaccines. And uh, the interesting thing is, as I was looking through the things that he was saying, the things that he was articulating, is I kind of started getting a little bit upset. I started getting a little bit riled up. And you've probably been here too, where you see somebody posting about something and and it's just frustrating because you think, you know, I don't know about for this particular person, but I just want to ask the question. I want to ask him, how could you really trust all those sketchy sources that you're putting out there for people? But I kind of left it and I tried to cool down a little bit and so I flipped over to Instagram. I was flipping through, finding uh, all, all sorts of different cute pictures of people's, you know, kids and their families, things that they're doing these days. And then I came to this one post and it was a boat post from, you know, somebody I followed a number of years ago and they were uh, posting about climate change. And, they're, and, and, I'm, and I'm reading kind of what they're writing and then I'm kind of jumping in the comment section looking and I think, ah, oh, I just want to bring some truth to this conversation. I want to I comment here because, because it's clear that they've missed the boat. They don't understand what's really at stake and they don't understand what they're saying. They're, they're just in their own echo chamber and it's just a little bit ridiculous. And I asked this question, and maybe you thought this, self as, uh, this yourself as well, that who could, who could really believe what these people believe? How could they come to these types of conclusions? So then I think about going uh, over to TikTok, um, but I'm a 33-year-old dad of three kids, and so I don't do that. Uh, I go to Facebook. Sorry, that's a little bit of shade, but if that's you, we'll chat after. And so I go back to Facebook, and 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 I find somebody talking about inequality and, and they have this big post and they're, and they're kind of jumping on and they've got some ideas that they're sharing and, and I just think, man, I, I don't think they get it how they're contributing to this polarization and this toxic environment and, and the things that they're writing about just aren't quite true and I ask myself this question, how could they honestly post? How could they honestly post what they're posting? Now you've had this kind of emotional reaction to perhaps something you've seen online or something that somebody else has said or a conversation that you've been in with a family member or a friend or a coworker, and, and you realize that they have such a dramatically different approach than you do to an important topic. And as you have that emotional reaction, as you get a little bit fired up, as you get a little bit discombobulated you know, all inside, it kind of brings us to this big question that we want to wrestle with. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do to win in this toxic world because the stakes are so high? What are you supposed to do to win in this world because we all know the stakes are so high? Now, the interesting thing, of course, is I've talked about these three really important issues, is I didn't take a stand in this conversation about any of them. You've got no idea what I believe about any of those things. And I'm not trying to make a point about any one of those things or make a stand on any of these things. In fact, that is the farthest thing from what we need to talk about today because today the conversation is about that feeling, about that emotion, about what you do when you're disgruntled and when you're upset and when you're, when you're frustrated, when you deal with somebody who is on the other side of a topic or a conversation and you clearly know that they're wrong and that they're dangerous. What do you do with that? And so you just need to know that if you're playing this back through and like trying to understand, did did, did he say what I think he said about any one of those three issues? No, I didn't, I didn't say anything. I'm not making any stance. The point is, 
is that we all have this common emotion and frustration that we have to deal with and we have to process. And that's what we're gonna talk a little bit about today and actually for a number of weeks. So, so if you're newer to our church, just in case you're wondering how this works, is we actually will often take a big topic like this, this idea of the toxic environment that, that we live in each and every day. And then we, we unpack it over a number of weeks. And so Joel, our lead pastor, he's invited me to take um, this first week, which we're, which we're gonna tackle, this is great. He's gonna take for the next few weeks this topic and tease it out from a number of different angles. Sometimes, obviously, we have different communicators around some of these topics, and so it's, a, it's a, sometimes, I, we think, a healthy way to, to take something big and, 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 and parse it out and do it justice. Now, a little bit about me in case you know, we haven't met. My name's Jeremy. I have been a part of this church for just over 20 years, off and on. And the, and the off parts aren't because I was disgruntled or angry. Um, the off parts is because I moved away for school or I went and worked at a different church. I've been in vocational ministry uh, my whole life. I went to school to be a pastor. I continue uh, to serve in ministry, uh, doing some all sorts of really interesting things across our country. But I'm a part of this church and my kids are in our kids' environments. We love being here. And the cool thing, I think, at least from my perspective and my story, is that because I've been a part of church world for so long, really my whole life, is I've noticed around some of these big topics over the years that oftentimes culture and our world will assume that the church, the group of people that are gathered here today, if you've got a window open or you've got a podcast downloaded, you, you know, you're kind of a part of this whole thing that we're doing here today. And, and sometimes our culture assumes that the church, that we're all on the same page and we're really unified around any one of these big topics, which is, which is crazy. Because it, for you, I mean, you know, you think about me and, and are we on the same page on some of these things? If people assume that, you might get a little bit nervous because you're like, I don't know what that guy believes about all sorts of different things. He might be crazy. A little bit. And so for our culture, though, this assumption is something that we kind of have to deal with and, and we have to wrestle with. Now, if you're here, and, and, and we also recognize this, there's lots of you that are watching, that are listening, that are here in the room, and you're saying, I'm actually really, probably really far from all the things that you believe because you don't even necessarily believe in this whole Christian God thing, Jesus, the Bible. Like, you're here because somebody forces you to be here. Like, this is the only way you get lunch today is if you sit through the church service. You know, you're here because she's really cute. And so if she's really cute and you do what she says for this hour, then maybe you get a chance to spend more time with her. Like whatever the reason is that you found yourself here, even if you don't believe in all sorts of the things we believe in, you need to know that we're really glad that you're watching, that you're listening, that you're here. In fact, we think about our services with you in mind because we hope as a team, as a pastoral team, as a church, we hope that by being with us for this time, that you might be inspired by the things that we talk about, by this God that we sing to, that you might be inspired by the faith of the people around this place, that you might consider making Jesus your king, that you might consider trying out this faith that we aim to live out. And so this particular message, we're gonna kind of peel back a little bit of what we as Christians are supposed to do in our toxic world. We don't always get it right, but, but we're called to this. And, and if this isn't your story and this isn't your God, I hope that, that what we talk about it is, is inspiring to you and might move you to action. So, big topics. Big, giant topics that, that the culture assumes the church is all together on and takes all sorts of different views. I mean, you've seen it. You see it in the news. You see it when you, when you flip through your social media accounts. It's all of the big, important topics of our day. And, and again, 
There's so much diversity here, and yet they assume that we're united on things like climate change, on things like income inequality, on things like racism, or maybe even public health, things like political power, or things like LGBT equality, or things like social supports, or maybe even economic prosperity. These massive, massive topics that people assume we're all united on. But on any one of these topics, no matter what you believe about them, the interesting thing is that we're all kind of conditioned to, to think about what we believe as being the right answer. And if anybody disagrees with us on this particular topic, if anybody has a different approach or a different understanding, that they're toxic and they could actually be dangerous, that there is actually on all of these things, there's a lot at stake. And so on any one of these things, the big question that we all wrestle with as we think about the issues of our day, we ask, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do to win in this toxic world? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? What's your responsibility when you discover that there's something that, that is toxic and people are crazy and people disagree with you? And of course, our time here today, what are we as Christians called to do when we discover how toxic our world is? Now, the interesting thing is that this is actually not a new issue, surprise, surprise. This has been something that has been being dealt with for all sorts of years. And in fact, if we go back 2,000 years, we'll discover a people group that were wrestling with this exact very question. At the time that the New Testament letters were being written and the biographies of Jesus, there were two cultural groups that were, that were inside of a, a very oppressive culture. There was the Jews, there was those early Christians, and they were living under Roman rule, Roman occupation. And the Jews, as a, as a people group, had experienced that kind of oversight for a very long time. In fact, uh, as a rabbi writes and a, and a, uh, a researcher, a historian, uh, a, a really, really thoughtful person, if you want to dig in, um, from the Maccabees to the Mish, uh, Mish uh, you'll get that later, we'll Google it, uh, Shea Cohen, because uh, I can't say it, uh, for more than a thousand years, he says, the Jews of antiquity lived under the rule of the Persians, the Hellenistic kingdoms of Egypt and Syria, the Romans. They seldom rebelled, although they did sometimes, even when provoked, the stated goal of these Jews was not to the elimination, but the amelioration, can't pronounce that, but it means getting better, like experiencing something better, of their Roman, their Roman rule. And, and, and the truth is, is that the Jews did rebel at times. There was the Zealots, there was the whole Hasmonean uh, revolt, and, 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 the, and there's a stretch there that they had a different kind of experience. But for the most part, the Jews experienced this kind of overarching culture that a pressed them and, 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 and kind of tied them in, and they had this hope that God would come and rescue them politically, that God would come and give them power so that they could exercise their might over the world, because in those days, might was right. If you had the power to exercise your authority over the people around you, you did, and that's what they continually experienced. And so they kind of carved out their own special, unique Jewish cultural experience inside of this overarching culture, and they, and they didn't want to interact with Gentiles, they had their dietary laws that prohibited them from you know, eating certain foods and so they, they wouldn't visit other Gentile homes or, or try and mix their families or anything like that. And, and it's this kind of culture that the Christians, the early church, grew up and had to sort out the same sorts of things. What are we supposed to do when there's an oppressive government over top of us? What are we supposed to do when we're required to pay taxes and our tax dollars are going to things that we would highly disagree with? What are we supposed to do when the Romans are actually persecuting, torturing, and, and killing us? 
as a group. This was the, the wrestle that, that, that Christians had to sort out. And it was a really toxic environment in that early church, a to- toxic culture. So it'd be interesting, right, if we could... Um, hop in a time machine and, and journey back and, and, and be able to interact with those early Christians, like what would we give them in terms of, of like a, a, a pump up speech or like what would we give them in terms of like what should you do early church as you experience this kind of oppression and this kind of toxic culture all around you and people that are, 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 are rooting against you, right? What would, we, what would we tell them? I mean, you could say almost anything. You could tell them uh, maybe you should fight back against the Romans, like get them rallied up and, and revolt in some kind of way. Or maybe ask me, you know, get, get them to rise to political power in the empire. That's what you should do. Get voted in. Not that that's exactly how it worked, but hide out in caves in the wilderness. Christians, you keep dying to this government power. Why don't you separate yourself and leave? Or maybe even not just the wilderness, move all the way to China and hope for a better life. Or maybe, maybe just maybe, complain on social media for all the hardships that you have. That's cheeky. Now, interestingly, this very challenge is something that the early church wrestled with and they spoke about. So if we go back to one of the early letters that we have of the early church, in particular in Philippi, Paul, an early church leader, wrote to them and gave them a bit of instructions and marching orders as, you, as we kind of process what it means to, to live in a, in a toxic culture, one that's a lot less toxic than the Roman culture, obviously. But nonetheless, wrestling with this question of what to do, Paul writes to the church in Philippi. And and his letter is captured in in the book of Philippians is what we call it. It's in our New Testament. And so you're welcome to track along. Now, interestingly, Paul, the the lead-in, I think is really fascinating to the point that we're really gonna make, but I wanted you to to hear this anyways. And so in Philippians uh, chapter three, verse 17, Paul writes, he says, join together in following my example. Now, I always love when we discover fresh and anew throughout the New Testament, that our faith is meant to be lived out in community. Follow my example, Paul says. This is something that we discover throughout the New Testament, but, but also throughout our Christ, Christian history that, that honestly, if you want to grow spiritually, you have to be connected relationally. You have to be found in community with other Christians. This is, this is how our faith actually transmits and how we encourage one another. And so you've done the right thing. I mean, you're, you're connected in Christian community here through the power of technology. Like this is, you're doing the thing. And yet there's lots of folks that assume that, that their faith can be something just between them and God that they live on their own. And that's not it at all. You know, Paul says, follow my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. This idea of relational faith. He goes on though. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, to which we'd say, absolutely, we know them. We see the articles that they post. We see the things that they say to the news agencies. We know that there's enemies of Christ. We see them at our workplace and they're on our street. Paul, we've got it. What are we supposed to do about them? Paul goes on to explain, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. We're like, we get that. Maybe that's a little bit helpful, but Paul, what should we do? We're in this toxic space. What do we do when we recognize that so much of the world doesn't agree with us? What do we do when we discover that we are surrounded by people who are thinking wrongly? Paul says, 
our citizenship is in heaven. To which we're like, mm, that's not exactly what we're looking for, Paul. We're looking for some marching orders. We're looking for some direction. Our citizenship is in heaven? And for lots of us today, you know, that idea has been a little bit misconstrued. And maybe if you've been in church for a while, somebody's used this particular verse to tell you that our whole goal is just to make it to heaven and forget about what's going on here because this is a little bit of a crazy place. So our citizenship is in heaven. I've got my ticket to heaven. It's booked. I'm just waiting for the train to depart and I'll hop on and be done with this spot. But that's not at all what Paul's saying here. Paul's invitation to the Philippian church is actually much richer and much deeper, and I think much more fascinating. So we're going to try and see if it's fascinating for you. I think it's going to be great. This is what actually we discover when we uh, do a little bit of deep dive. So in case you didn't realize, there's a lot of uh, theologians and, and biblical scholars who, who write about what it was like in the early first century. They write about some of these words and some of the things that we find in the scriptures, and they unpack it a little bit more for us. And having this kind of context helps us understand. So there's a uh, biblical commentary. Hawthorne and Martin wrote it. It's a part of a bigger series. And they write this particularly about this idea of citizenship. So the word citizenship comes from a Greek word that's only used this once in the New Testament, but that's discovered elsewhere, um, politema, politema. Um, it was used to designate a colony of foreigners or relocated, relocated veterans whose, whose purpose, they had a purpose. So the, the foreigners, the citizens, are foreigners in the land that they're in, and they have a purpose. The purpose was to secure the conquered country for the conquering country. This is so interesting. By spreading abroad that country's way of doing things, its customs, its culture, and its laws. The foreigners, our citizenship is in heaven. Our, we are people of a different kingdom with a different king. Our first citizenship isn't to this place at all. And yet, because we're citizens of a different place, we actually come with purpose to this place. Because we're foreigners in this land, it doesn't mean that we just look forward to going back home, but instead that we have reason for being here, really clear reason for being here. And the Philippians would have understood exactly what that meant because their town, Philippi, was a colony of Rome. And Rome would use this as a tactic all the time. Rome would, would set up a colony as an outpost to disseminate their culture in the land. Because as they expanded, the Romans couldn't immediately you know, replace all the people with Roman citizens. Instead, they would bring their culture and want it to be infused into the new lands that they conquered. So that then the Roman Empire would you know, spread across the Mediterranean Rim. So they understood this in Philippi because they were a colony of Rome. This is how it worked. And it brought an immense amount of purpose and power to the local community. But Paul's saying, we've got a citizenship that's not of this world. We've got a, a heavenly citizenship. And our responsibility is to bring the culture, the laws, the customs of heaven, the way of doing things in this kingdom of heaven, this Jesus way, and actually infuse it into our world today. That's our purpose. We're not just waiting. We've got a job to do. Now, the interesting thing is that, that they actually unpack what this means a little bit more because I think for a lot of us, we get hung up on some of the things that seem to go wrong in our culture today. But for neither the, the person that is uh, doing the colonizing the, or the Christian, they, they didn't depend on for their meaning, their character, their purpose, 
of their life on the ethos of the alien environment, nor did he allow that environment to determine the, uh, the quality of his behavior. So I think for us, sometimes we think like, because our alien environment is so toxic sometimes, that that adjusts how we experience our lives and our purpose. But, but we're setting our sights on something much different. That no matter what happens here in this culture, it doesn't change the fact that God's actually called us to do something very specific, to bring his kingdom to this earth and to spread the kingdom values amongst this earth. And that's what this series is all about, or what are those kingdom values? What are the things that we're meant to embody and meant to bring? What are the things that we're called to do in the midst of our culture? Now, I want to make sure that we have something tangible to think about even for us here today and, and going from here today. And so I want to give you one of the, the most clear ideas that I think I can find in the New Testament about what these kingdom values mean. Because Jesus, Jesus the king that we serve and follow, Jesus had a, a, a amount of kingdom ethics that, that he unpacked for his early followers. And the interesting thing about, of course, the life of Jesus is he lived in light of Roman occupation in a toxic culture. And Jesus came with all the power of heaven that he could have taken over. And there was a lot of expectation that he would take over politically and adjust everything from the top down. And, and from earthly standards for the people of his day, Jesus really, I mean, he didn't really play to win. Jesus was was experiencing a much different set of goals and standards, and, and people didn't quite understand. And, and if you were around in those early days and watched the person you expected to take over die a death at the hands of just a few Roman soldiers, you would have thought that Jesus was actually playing to lose, that he gave up his chance. But of course, Jesus was playing a different game. Jesus was about something much different. And before his death on the cross, Jesus gathered with his closest followers and he unpacked a kingdom value that, that we're meant to embody that's, that's pretty clear and, and pretty dangerous. That I think this kingdom value unpacked is what transformed the world after his death and resurrection. So in John, John records the, uh, the encounter when he's gathered Jesus with his closest followers. And Jesus says, a new command I give to you, which is what they would have expected from a rabbi, from a teacher, that he would unpack new commandments for them and give them new instructions. So the, the, they're like, they're, they're around, they're expecting this, they're anticipating this. This is perfect. John, you're writing this down. We've got it, a new commandment. Jesus says, love one another. To which they say, that's not new, Jesus. We've had that one for a long time. And he says, I'm not done, I'm not done yet. Love one another as I have loved you. And in that moment, they wouldn't fully understand what that love meant. But shortly after, loving one another as Jesus has loved us, that's a high calling. And he says, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. And how much did Jesus love us? He was willing, of course, to give up his life for us, to make himself nothing, to hand over all of the rights that he had as the son of God and be willing to pay a price that was embarrassing, that was dehumanizing, that was awful for us. 
And this is the love that we're supposed to embody. This is the kingdom value of those that call heaven our home. It's the love that in us can change everything. So when we process and we think about as Christians, what does it mean to be like Jesus and to love like this in our culture today? What are we supposed to to do as we're processing the toxic nature of everything around us? I think, and you've got to process this for yourself, but I think that the church looks more like Christ when we are defending other people's rights rather than our own. It's what Jesus did. In fact, I think the church, I think the church looks more like Christ when we are giving away rather than demanding our way. And in a lot of ways, it looks like you would be losing if you did that. And yet, this is the way Jesus has made for us. And this is the way that transformation comes. Now, if you're a little bit uncertain of that, and if it sounds like, I don't know, the political power and the political might, if we could rally that up, that would surely be a little bit more practical, Jeremy, if you're, if you're really being clear with us. Like, let's go and do some marching. Let's go and do some different kind of things than just giving up our rights. I would love for you to remember the story of, of Pliny and Emperor Trajan. So Pliny was a governor uh, just about 100 years after Jesus in uh, the Mediterranean area and a part of the Roman expansion. So Emperor Trajan was uh, considered one of the better emperors, but was a Roman Empire uh, emperor um, still. And, uh, and Pliny was, was kind of faced with this new, uh, this new sect, this new religion, these Christians. And he was trying to process what he's supposed to do with this group that was seemingly slowly taking over And the issue with Christians is that the Christians, the early church, they wouldn't do the things that the emperor was hoping they would do. In particular, the Roman Empire expected you to worship the emperor. So for Emperor Trajan, the expectation was that you would would bow your knee and you would worship him. And there was lots of other gods that you could worship, but but Emperor Trajan was was somebody you had to worship. So Pliny was encountering these, these Christians and and it was a little bit confusing because he would have to kind of pull them aside and you know, torture some and was digging in, trying to understand what he should do. And he wrote this letter to Emperor Trajan looking for advice and explaining what he was discovering about this early church. Remember this early church that if we could go back and give them some advice, what would we really tell them? Well, this is what, what Pliny found about them. He said this, writing about the early church. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn, and before dawn because there was no day off to celebrate your religion. Every day was a work day, and so they had to get up early and show up for the 5 a.m. worship service. And they would sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, which is confusing because, of course, this Christ that they worship, like we executed, and yet this is the part where, for Pliny, this is obviously something dangerous. This is a dangerous religion. And, and trying to understand, okay, what are they actually doing? They must, they must have some type of, of expectation of overthrowing things or, or changing everything. And so, so he writes on to, to, to Emperor Trajan, they bind themselves by oath. And this is probably the oath. Yeah, what are they committing themselves to? Not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, adultery, or not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. These sound like nice people. He goes on, when this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but just ordinary 
and innocent food. This early church, these revolutionaries, they were kingdom people. And as much as Pliny and then lots of others tried to figure out, they must be up to something, they were doing the hard work of bringing the kingdom values into their culture, into their day. So Pliny, though, trying to be optimistic, he writes this towards the close. He says, for many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered, endangered because obviously he doesn't want anybody to follow this new religion. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and to the farms. It was capturing people's imaginations because it was so compelling. The vision of this kingdom was so different that might was not right, that your power you would use to serve others, that there was this God who loved you enough to sacrifice for you. It was, it was so compelling. But Pliny, and, and, and of course, so many other people since then, he said this, he said that, it seems possible to check and to cure it, to stamp it out, that this thing, surely we can wrap it up, this Christian faith. And so many people have assumed that, right? So many people have thought this is the generation where it ends. I mean, this is, this is just 111 AD. Surely, Emperor Trajan, we can stamp out this movement. To which, today, 2021, I ask the question, how many people now worship Emperor Trajan or any emperor of the Roman Empire? And instead, how many people worship this Christ? You see, when you think about our culture, you're not in a fight with someone else's view. You're not in a fight over an issue. You, my friends, if you call Christ your king, if you call Christ your king, you are a citizen of heaven. And your responsibility is to a different kingdom. Your responsibility is to a different king. And yes, there are so many important issues of our day, but to each and every one of them, your responsibility is to process what it means to be a kingdom person, to represent this kingdom of heaven, this different way of being, and to bring that to this earth, and to bring a little bit of heaven into your social media feed, to bring a little bit of heaven onto your street, to bring a little bit of heaven into your workplace, into your family. And that question Lord, what would it take to bring a little bit of heaven into this environment? That's the question that we have to ask. And it's the question that if we would seriously process it, had the power to transform, transform the world. Transformed it once. Empires have been toppled. Emperors are dead. But this Jesus that we serve still lives and still has the power to transform our world today. So I want to pray for you. And pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that this idea that we're a citizen of your kingdom, Lord, that it doesn't mean that we're just anticipating a new day where we don't have to be in this place. This place is messy. This place has hurt. This place has disease. This place has injustice. This earth is is groaning and it's difficult in so many ways to be here. And yet, Lord, you invite us to be citizens of your place and bring the culture of your kingdom around us. 
And Lord, that's gonna be different for different times and for different people. And so we ask your wisdom to know what you would have for us. And God, give us the courage to then act that out. Lord, for those that have been burned by the church or been frustrated by the responses that they've seen over the years or through the news, Lord, I pray that your kingdom values would be made clear to them, that they might be inspired by your kingdom and that they may choose to align themselves with you, King Jesus. And Lord, when we mess it up, I pray that we're quick to ask for forgiveness, not just from you, but from the people around us and the culture around us, that we could be the right representations of your kingdom to Moncton, to Dieppe, to Riverview, to New Brunswick, to Canada, to our world today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about Moncton Wesleyan, we invite you to visit our website at mw.church. We are here to help you with any questions you might have. See you next time.